the terrific twos, <laughs> as we call them. And uh, Exodus chapter 2, you've got Moses born into a family and that's in captivity in Egypt. And the edict has been made that to the Hebrew midwives, that for every male that's born in Israel, just kill them at birth. And the midwives say, uh, well, you know, those Israelite women, they're a little slippery. They're different than uh, Egyptians. They give birth early. They're, they're done before we get there, so we can't do that. And God honors the midwives for that and gives them their own families. Moses is born into that atmosphere as a boy, and uh, the, the Bible tells us that mom and dad hide him as long as they can, but they can't hide him any longer, <clears throat> and his life is in peril. And so they build the little ark, and they've set it afloat in the, in the river. And uh, Miriam, his sister, stands in the reeds and waits to see what will happen. And uh, Pharaoh's daughter comes down along the river and spots the basket and knows that it's a, a Hebrew child. She goes, this is one of the Hebrew children. And uh, Miriam pops out right on time and says, would you like me to find a good Hebrew woman to raise that boy for you? And she says, do it. And so Miriam goes and gets mom and Moses is restored to his own mother. And she raises him. During the very formative and important years, his culture is embedded into his spirit by his parents. And here we have the symbolism for you parents and uh, grandparents here this morning that are thinking about your children and giving them up to the Lord. There are days when you want to give them to the Lord. I know. <laughs> I mean, almost literally, you want to just hand off. <clears throat> Say, this one's yours. And... Uh, but in the very committed way, what we're talking about this morning in dedication, and I know there are a number of families here this morning that you're going to say, wow, I didn't realize this was happening. I feel left out. We'll do more of these. We, you know, we've got another one lining up already. Thank you for the dentist's inspiring moment this morning to get us back on task with this. But the symbolism and the structure of the scripture says this, that we take our children as God gives them to us and we hand them to him. And here's Moses in the basket. I mean, mom and dad say he's, he's yours now. I mean, we cannot control the outcome of this process, but we've done all we can do. And what does God do? He says, I take them. They're mine. And then he hands them right back to us. He says, now you raise them for me. You're, they're mine. Remember this always. They're mine. You gave them to me. It's your challenge. It's your responsibility now to raise them. As it says in... Uh, the scriptures and the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Samuel, mom's barren. She goes up to the temple. She's praying. She's basically convulsing to a point to where the priest thinks she's drunk and rambling. And he says, woman, what do you, you know, get out of here. You drink, you drink too much. And she says, I'm not, I'm not drunk. You're talking about a broken heart here. I've been asking God for a son. I don't want to be barren. He says, well, Excuse me, I was way off base and go home and may God grant your request. And next year she has Samuel, a little boy. She brings him back to the temple and dedicates him there. And then the Bible records for us at the point where he's weaned. And there's some discussion about how old that might be. But without getting lost in the details, when he's weaned, when he is old enough to be away from his parent, mom in this case, and dad, of course, He's brought to the temple and he's left there. Not abandoned. He's deposited there. Because her prayer was, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you and he'll serve you all the days of his life. 
And so she brings him back to the house of God and says, I prayed. She says to the priest, you know, I'm the one that stood here last time and you rebuked me and all that. Remember, now here's the product of my prayer. And I bring him to you and he's going to be raised in the temple and serve the Lord all the days of his life. She would come year after year and bring him little things and, and see, her, see her child there at the temple. But Samuel grew up to be the prophet of the Lord and uh, became one of the judges of the whole nation under the direct leadership of God. Here again, another great biblical account of dedicating our children to God. Of course, in Luke chapter 2, then we have Jesus, born, circumcised on the eighth day, given his name as was proper under Jewish law <clears throat> on the eighth day. And then after the days of purification, it says in Luke chapter 2, which was about 40 days when a woman gave birth to her firstborn son, there was a period of purification of 40 days that took place. During that was the eight days, the days of circumcision and the giving of the name. And then 40 days passed, the purification, she, and she and Joseph bring Jesus into the temple. And we, many of us know the account. You know, the, <clears throat> uh, you've got the prophetic moment where Anna and, and the prophet of God are saying, this is it, this is the confirmation, this is who we've been waiting for. Uh, you know, your servant can go to go in peace now because you said I wouldn't die before I saw the salvation of God and before I saw the Lord's Messiah and now I've, I've held him. And uh, Anna the prophet bears witness and all this happens at the temple and there's a dedication of Jesus. What do you think? Would Jesus need to be dedicated? Huh? Come on. Through the process, Jesus fulfilling all of the scripture. And so Joseph and Mary, I love what it says about Mary. She just overwhelmed by most things that happened uh, in the moment, but always stored them up in her heart. And said, I'm going to hang on to this. I may not get it all now, but God will reveal it to me as it unfolds. And so we know that Jesus was presented to his father in the temple and immediately given back to the parents to raise. And uh, so this charges to you, the parents, and those who are bringing children this morning for dedication. It really isn't... Um, only child dedication that we're doing here this morning. What we're dedicating is families. What we're dedicating is those who are raising children. See, I hope you're getting this. I didn't give you the opportunity to bring your kids, drop them off. <laughs> Amen? I mean, I mean, I know it was funny the first time I said it, so I'll try and get a little more humor out of it, but you know, we can't give them the Lord and walk off and say, okay, now they're his. However it comes out is sovereign. No, the challenge is to families. Children will never be dedicated to the Lord unless the parents are dedicated. We're the ones that have to raise them according, Proverbs you know, says, raise them according to their particular bent. Raise them up in the way of the Lord when they're old, they won't depart from it, right? So we're the ones that look for that particular bent and some of them have bigger bends than others. Amen, and uh, we don't have to try and break that we begin to mold the character. We begin to shape uh, the will without breaking the spirit. Because a lot of them have a lot of spirit. Amen. there's books written about those kids. How to handle them. So let me invite the, those of you that are coming this morning. Come stand with me. Bring your children. I'll invite the elders to come as we uh, take this moment in hand together. Let's come and stand. You say, well, why do they have to stand in front of everybody? Well, here's why. These families are making 
a statement to us as a congregation. And in the past, I've had the membership stand. I'm not going to do that this morning, but let me charge us as a church that you can stage any picture you want, by the way. You know, this is fine. Um, these families are bringing a challenge to us this morning because they're standing in front of us as the, as the body of Christ. And they're saying to us, our children are dedicated in front of you. And we know the whole body isn't here this morning, uh, but a lot of us who are part of this congregation uh, are, know these families, we know these kids, we know Joseph, regardless of what some of you think, his name is Joseph, not Jophus. All his friends call him Jophus. And uh, Andrew and Alexis over here, Alexis McKenzie, this is Alexis McKenzie Hastings, mom, Sarah, dad, Joshua, isn't he a great husky guy, just a good man, Andrew, good man, aren't you, yeah, you are, Maria, Jim Dennis, and Joseph, and uh, these are presenting to us a challenge as a church, so I charge us as well, will we receive them as families in the body of Christ, will we honor them as parents? who are going to have tough times in raising their kids and may need some encouragement. We're going to be alongside and pray. When we see them, these little ones buzzing down the hallway or through the rooms around here or between your legs, uh, will you think twice before you go to reprimand and say, oh, we're supposed to be forming and shaping character here. We're on the same team. We're backing them up. When, we're, when they're brought to mind, we pray and intercede. We don't just wonder. And God gives us a responsibility as a family, as the body of Christ, to say, okay, these are, again, more responsibility for us. How many are willing to take on the challenge this morning? Amen? So we appreciate you guys. And so let me ask you, uh, just kind of corporately, let you scoot over here a little bit so I can aim easier. Um, would you <clears throat> be telling us this morning that this is your intention to raise your kids in the fear and the admonition of the Lord? Is that what you're planning Absolutely. on doing here? And that you yourselves would be dedicated to Jesus first. Yes. And that your hearts will be pursuing God with all that you can. All right? And uh, I'm sure glad you're being good, Lexi. <laughs> such a sweet. She kind of runs from me sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, and then the, just simply then let's respond. Will we then, based on their verbal dedication this morning, and they're saying they're going to raise them for Jesus, will we help as best we can? Yes. yes, we will. So we're on the same team. Let me just ask the elders to lay hands on you as we begin to pray. Well, Lord, if these were infants, we would hold them in our arms as you would and receive them from the parents. And Lord, as we lay our hands on these young people this morning, we do receive them in Jesus' name. Lord, as, the, as your servants, as your assigned, as we put our hands on them, we separate them in the name of Jesus, to the glory of God and to the kingdom of God. We thank you, Lord, for the hedge of protection that you put over them and for the angel of the Lord to guard round about them all the days of their lives. Lord, that they would be separated to you as gifts to you, Lord. We know that you then respond by giving them back to the parents and so we lay our hands on the parents with the authority of Jesus' name and speak life and grace to them. Lord, we thank you that your wisdom will be upon them and that your mind and thoughts will be released in them. 
and that your mercies will be new every morning over their homes and over their families. God, that you will give them the courage and the stamina and the insight on how to raise children for Jesus. Lord, to take the responsibility squarely upon their shoulders, but mostly within their hearts to be able to do your bidding and to do your will and to perform your kingdom business on these families and these children. Lord, we thank you for them in Jesus' name this morning. We pray that as a congregation, you will give us the ability to love them, to embrace them, to always encourage them, and to pray for them when you bring them to our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 We have some certificates for you. Joseph Richard Torres. You're welcome. And these are for you guys, okay? Andrew and Alexis. Love you. Oh. Oh. See you later, buddy. See you at my house, okay? Love you. Love you. Love you, buddy. Thank you for being you. Congratulations. Thank you, sir. Godspeed. You need to mop up a little bit there. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, God. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you guys loving Jesus and serving him all the days of your life. Let's give him a big hand this morning. Hallelujah. God bless you. This is why we call it the family of God. Some of us grow and end up with closer relationships with the family of God than our own immediate families, don't we? Amen. Well, here we are. It's Valentine's weekend. And I know this is going to come to you a little late, but I want you to see this video clip this morning. Um, just to help us get our thinkers in straight. All right, and so Jane's going to run this for us. It's from a group called Angel Mission. I don't really know them, um, but I certainly would be in favor of what they're doing, having been exposed to them here briefly by God TV, Rory and Wendy. And uh, anyway, it'll explain itself. You'll be amazed. period, when a chivalrous fellow courted his pretty maiden, the couple was to make known their affection by wearing a paper heart on their sleeve, and so followed the cliché, wearing your heart on your sleeve. In Korea, individuals searching for love are to visit a local restaurant and place an order for black noodles to publicly display their mourning over their singleness. Nowadays, the interweb offers a multiplicity of options to express love. Showing love is no more difficult than logging into your favorite social network and sending a virtual gift or e-card to your net-surfing damsel. The pervading idea is that the more gifts we give, the bigger and better, the sweeter, the richer, the more effectively we display our love for one another. Consumption is so culturally pervasive, it's begun to define how we display our love for one another. We now find an entire industry capitalizing on this schmoozy, sentimental day, resulting in little else than making consumers better consumers. Each year, around $540 million is spent on greeting cards alone. 
Currently, Americans spend $6.3 billion each year on simple petals and stems for loved ones. It is estimated that Americans will spend $1.1 billion on chocolates this Valentine's Day. In total, this year, Americans will spend approximately $17 billion in celebration of the Valentine's Day holiday. It is not in the giving of gifts where the issue lies. The issue is we have a propensity to fall into the trap of marketers who suggest that frivolous spending on disposable goods is a virtuous and legitimate expression of love. Angel Mission is a nonprofit organization who provides clean water to African communities through the drilling of community water wells. From years of work and experience in the field, we have broken it down to this. $5 provides one person water for 20 years. In perspective, 50% of what we spend on Valentine's Day is spent the six days prior. If this same money was given to drill water wells, we could provide safe water for 1.7 billion people. $5 isn't much to most Americans, but to the people we help, it may be a matter of life and death. So the plea is this, do something crazy. Take the $5 you would normally spend oiling the industrial machine and spend it on something, no, someone in need. That's love. Happy Valentine's Day, Angel Mission. I know that kind of goes by fast, but it's uh, it kind of shocking to me when I saw it that, you know, we've got a nation wrestling over a stimulus bill and uh, 17 billion dollars on Valentine's Day was kind of shocking. We're trying to find, you know, that compares to the stimulus bill. There's a piece in there, 17 billion, for expanding uh, the ability for student loans you know, for a whole nation. Yeah. Well, it's uh, kind of fitting that we would observe child dedications and and getting this video clip as we move in today's message on decisions and relationships. The video I wanted you to see because last week we talked about making good financial decisions. And ladies, I'm not trying to cut out all your chocolates and your flowers. And it's not my goal this morning to make your life miserable. Um, So I'll just leave it at that. It's not my goal. <laughs> uh, how do you wiggle out of this? But I'm sure that most of you ladies would agree that if you knew there were, uh, you know, one person had water for 20 years instead of you got a greeting card, you'd probably be okay for a year, wouldn't you? Yeah, okay. So financial decisions, making good decisions. That, that would be a good decision, making a, a new methodology for how you handle gift giving. Decisions in relationships. Eventually we're going to get to 1 Samuel 18 if you want to turn there, but before we do that I'm going to rush through a series of thoughts for those how many of you are unmarried today? And how many of you are happily married today? Hey, how many of you are unhappily married today? <laughs> wait, 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 stop, don't raise your hand. Decisions in relationships, you know, one, one bad decision in relationship can ruin your life, can it? You really foul things up, I think, of the woman at the well. Jesus approaches her, and they start talking, and he says, well, why don't you go get your husband? Well, I don't have one. He said, that's right. 
You don't have one. In fact, you've had five, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. Here's a lady that had six bad relationships, and her life is in trouble. So bad decisions can really destroy your life, can destroy the life of another person alongside of you. They're the the relationship decision you make about marriage, especially, I call it the second most important decision that you'll ever make on the planet. For all of us who traverse the globe, there's a, two major decisions that will change our future. One is the acceptance of Jesus Christ or rejection of Jesus Christ. I assume if you're here this morning that you're not planning on rejecting Jesus soon or else you'd be doing something else. So, But the acceptance of Christ as Savior is the most important decision any person will ever make. Forever. And I think that secondarily to that, you know, more than where you live, where you work, what car you drive, what house you live in, that kind of stuff, uh, all of that is pale compared to the choice of your long term relationship in marriage. We tell young people this often when we sit for premarital counseling. You know, this is this is not just a decision you're making in life, this is like the decision. Because we re-emphasize to them over and over, there's no side doors, there's no back doors, there's no escape hatches. You're committed. And we'll talk about that along the way. But let me give three quick points on, on building a good relationship for marriage. And young people should be the ones taking notes on this, the single ones. You should be really zoning in here, okay? Don't miss this. Number one, so important, relax. Relax. Uh, you know, when the relationship shows up, don't panic. Don't uh, go, oh my gosh, this could be the only person in the whole world that will ever love me. And start grabbing after them, you know. Oh, please don't go away. You know, they'll squirt out the other side. You'll lose them. Relax. Relax. Tranquilo. Genesis chapter 4, there's a passage where uh, we're talking about Abraham not wanting his kid Isaac to marry any of the local girls, so he sends his servant off back to the family members in another place and says, get him a wife. And the servant grabs the camels and all the goods and goes, and, and as he's arriving into the area where the wife should be chosen from, he, <clears throat> he prays, simply says, God, God of Abraham, uh, I've been sent as the servant of Abraham, your, your friend, and uh, I've got to find him a wife, so could we do it this way? When I get to the water well and I... And I ask one of the young ladies who's there to provide water for the animals if she'll give me a drink. And then she says, oh, and I'll water your camels also. Let that be the one. And Rebecca is the one. And uh, later on, the servant is in the house of Rebecca talking to her family. And he says this, while I was on the way, God led me. There's a little something for you about the kingdom of God and performing the will of God. He said, when I was on the way, don't sit still waiting for God to lead you. Get your boat moving. You know, it's easier to move the rudder and get some direction if you're moving. So uh, moving with God and on the way, he led me and then he answered this prayer. And this is how he answered. And so God sovereignly set up the relationship for Isaac. He didn't even know Rebecca until she was brought back to him. Then they fell in love. God can arrange relationships. Do I believe that there's only one person in the whole world for you? If you're married, I do. If you're unmarried, I'm flexible. And uh, here's, here's a little story. 
I used to drive a Sunday school van for this church, and it said it was a Ford uh, club wagon, you know, with the windows and the bench seats, and could pack a lot of kids in there. And I used to drive it every Sunday morning before Sunday school and drive all over the community and pick up kids and bring them back for Sunday school. And uh, there were these two young ladies that were vacationing here from the L.A. area. And um, one said to the other, you know, it's Sunday, we should go to church somewhere. And the other one said, why? We're on vacation. <laughs> and so sitting at the stop sign, they were at the top of Pine Knot, right by the little church shanty and across from Paoli's. You know where it's at, right? They were at the stop sign there. And I came to the stop sign coming down from the school by Paoli's and drove right across in front of them. And here was the church, Christian Center Church right on the van. And so they pulled in and followed. This is when the church was downtown, just two blocks to where the church used to be. And they pulled in and said, hey, when's church? And I said, well, it's in about an hour. Sunday school's now, church an hour. Okay, we'll be back. And as they drove away, I thought, this is really good news. Two good-looking girls coming to church this morning. I'm single. <laughs> this is good. This is very good. And so Peggy and her friend Julie came back to church that morning. Oh. And I sat up on the platform, leading, going to lead worship. And, you know, before church starts in those days, you had a platform with the chairs where the big wigs sit, right, in the church order. And uh, so the pastors, would, we would kneel and show our shoe soles to the church and, and pray and then turn around and sit down and look spiritual until the service started. And as I was sitting there looking spiritual, I was thinking, so Jeff, if you're going to take one of those girls to lunch today, which one would it be? You want to know who I picked? 50-50 chance, right? I picked Peggy. I really did. I said, hmm, that one. It was the only Sunday in a whole year that I had to work at my job. I had weekends off, I had Sundays off basically. Didn't have weekends off, but once a year we did inventory and we always did it on Sunday when we were closed. One day a year, it was that Sunday. And after church, I went to the drummer and another friend of mine. I said, guys, two girls. We never see girls here. There are no girls in this church. You know, uh, take them to lunch, man. And they said, no, we can't do that. I thought, oh, idiots. I said, if I didn't have to work, I'd take them both myself. And so off I went to work. Fortunately, they stuck around for a few days, and I began to get closer and feel very much like Isaac and Rebecca. God, if we'll just relax a minute and let God work, he can organize and he can lead and he can bring the relationship to us. God knows I probably would have never found her in L.A. <laughs> and I never went there. And so fortunate for this young, simple guy, God was kind enough to bring me Peggy. God knows when you're ready for a relationship, and if you're not, and you rush into it, you could ruin your life and somebody else's. So don't get in a hurry. Number two, that was a good point. Relax. Relax. Number two, take it slow. I know all of our ovens these days are electronic. We just push buttons and they beep and click and whir and heat up and do things. But remember the old, old days when you had a knob? Anybody still have a knob? 
Good, good. Some knobs out there. <clears throat> you know, so you have low and medium, medium high and high. And, you know, your relationships need to be kind of like an oven. You need to take it slow. If you're building a relationship, you put it on low when you first meet. You know, it's, uh, you know, you're doing group interaction. You're hanging around with a lot of people together. You're in a safe environment. You're not alone with the person. You're, you're in, a, in a slow, warm-up place. You don't let yourself get trapped too quickly in an awkward position. So it's fun. It's relaxed times, a lot of group activities, and, and you're not paired off yet in the group. You know, you're just with the group, the guys and the girls. It's a good idea. Gee, am I old-fashioned or what? You know, if you turn the heat up on the oven to medium, you're moving into the relationship where it's starting to warm up. You have a little more private interaction. You know, you're in the group long enough. You kind of figure out, I like that one best. And I like being around her. I like being around him. And I think, you know, I'd like to get to know them a little better. So you turn the heat up just a little further. And you have some private interaction, some face-to-face Fun time, you spend some hours together maybe doing something by yourselves and rather than with the group. Then it gets to that medium high, you know, where you're starting to move into what's called, uh, what I would call measured commitment. You have a certain level of commitment. Maybe you're dependent on each other for a few things now in the relationship. Not entirely, but you know, simple things like rides and I'll pick you up and how about we do and, and you're scheduling life a little bit more together. And you, so you become a little, uh, have some measured commitments, some interdependent actions. You start probing some other issues in life. You're, now you're in, almost in the investigation stage. You kind of wonder, what do they think about this? How would they respond to that? Um, what will it mean if we did this? And I said once, let's go do that. And she said, oh, no, I'd never do that. Oh, well, I learned that. And, or he's, you know, it could be the other way. So you're beginning to discover about each other. And as I look at some of you, uh, some of us seniors here, I'm a, a senior, some of you seniors, I know, but, you know, I hope I'm not just boring you with this. But you can always pass this on to your grandkids, right? Medium high for Peggy and I came in a park in, in Simi Valley. It was called Rancho Simi Park. We had ridden up there together and, and uh, <clears throat> I probably get the chronology messed up now 30 years later, but I remember the moment when we went to her sister's to do something with her, and she said, ah, I'm not ready. You know, Rancho Simi Park's just around the corner. If you've ever been up there, you know where it's at. they got lakes and ducks and grass and all that stuff. And Why don't you just go over there and hang out in the park and, and then uh, until I'm ready? So we went over the park and, and uh, laid out on the grass there and the lake and the ducks and the sun and the trees. And it was beautiful. And I began to ask Peggy as we were laying there kind of looking up. That's how I recall it. And I said, you know, what's important to you? What was the medium-high kind of questions? What's important to you? What's, what's the future look like? What is it you hope for? What are your dreams? What do you want? She began to tell me everything that was in my heart. As I laid there, I began to swallow a little harder and thought, wow, that's what I wanted. That's my hope. That's my dreams. Wow. And it was sort of shocking in the moment because... I'm sure the thought went through my mind, could this be? No. No, you don't marry your friend. You could mess it up. (laughs) And so you're starting starting to pair a little more in that medium-high zone. 
There was another time, and Peggy sometimes gets so embarrassed when I tell these stories, but it's because I love her, you know. She said to me once, you know, I've always wanted a black motorcycle. There was a guy in the church here who was selling a black motorcycle. It was a Yamaha 650. You know, it had some beef, had a little windshield on it, and that sort of thing. And uh, so I left there. She was in L.A. I came up here, and I said, how much do you want for this bike? And he said, 1000 bucks." And I said, okay. And I went and got a loan. And from the same people I had a loan on my house with, I just drove to their house. I said, look, I need another grand. And they said, ah, you're good for it. Here. And I went and bought the motorcycle. And that week, I rode it down to her house. And I pulled up in front, parked, and I went to the door. And she opened the door and went, <gasps> And I simply, you know, in all of my collectedness, I said, uh, you did say black. <laughs> We hopped on it, we rode up the coast, and we went to Pepperdine University. We pulled in the parking lot, and I'd never been there. In fact, I've never been there since. But I remember sitting on these, in this area in Pepperdine, those beautiful surroundings, and I thought, you know, a guy, a conquer. I was conquering, wasn't I? I was making some headway here. And, uh, you know, getting serious about this. And, um, and she said to me, I think we ought to date some other people. Now, why? Why would she say that? She's embarrassed, I know, but this is true. This is part of how it worked for us. I mean, the oven was getting turned up. The heat was getting hot. You know, it's like, this is moving beyond uh, this, you know, measured commitment to a little more romantic commitment, a little more discussion about permanency. And, you know, I say I want a motorcycle. He comes with a motorcycle. Oh my gosh, what is this? Um, you know, way beyond the chocolates and flowers for me. And, uh, and in, in my arrogance, I confess, I said to her, you know, we probably should date some other people. You probably should date some other people because if you don't, you'll never know how good you have it with me. <laughs> Ooh. Where is this guy coming from? And uh, for, to my great benefit, she did date one other guy, Dan. My friend Dan. And took her to Magic Mountain and walked ahead of her all day, never opened a door, never opened a car door. I mean, we still do that. I opened her door to come here this morning. I know my boys, and I, I, I weep a little on this because... If we're around, she should never open her own door, ever, any door. It's just our heart, right? And so me and my boys will race to see who can get to the door first. For our, they, sh they should just never have to. We should honor them. We should bless them and do the courteous things with them. And so this guy just blazed ahead for me. It's great. Come on, Peg, let's go. You know, let her, doors are closing in her face all day. And I'm going, way to go, Dan. Dan did me such a service that we actually had him sing at our wedding. Appreciate that guy. All of these things, I appreciate you letting me share my stories with you this morning, but take it slow. Let God turn the heat up a notch at a time. Don't rush. And I've got to throw this in because I'm part of a different generation, as a lot of us are here today. I'm just not convinced that you can build a good, strong relationship through text and email. 
Come on, I know, I know I've met people that have married because of the internet and done the whole thing and, you know, kind of fallen in love over the internet and love's an emotion, so be careful. It's one you need, but not one you want to base everything on. But I think that you need some face-to-face discussions about, like we had in the park that day when she started laying out what she wanted for the future. And I thought, boy, those are all the same things I want. And we did the whole date some other guy thing. And, and uh, man, don't be fooled that the electronic generation can build a lasting relationship. You really need to know touch and see and facial expression and heart. Um, I don't know. I'm, I think on that one I might remain old-fashioned. I think you could probably introduce yourself by a text, but I call people all the time wondering what the tone of voice was. I get a text and I go, oh, I get the words. But what is this? There's no little happy face or there's no little exclamation point. Or, I need something that says, hey, or no, or something you know, that gives tone of voice. And emails are kind of scary that way too. So, you know, you can do it with phone calls. You know, get off the text. Get the voice going. Let, let them hear the expression of your heart. Uh, I tell people I married Peggy to save money. Because in those final days of courting with her, I, was, I would go to Hallmark on the weekend and stand there and pick out a card for every day of the week. And go to the post office and get stamps. And so that I could drop, I'd write and drop one in the box every day. Every day. I still have a briefcase full of these things. <laughs> Memorabilia. And calling her all the time. We talk and talk and talk and talk and share hearts and share. And it was safe because we're three, three hours apart. You know, we weren't getting too close too soon. I have a book in my office called Too Close Too Soon. And it's a great book. It's out of print. But it's about not letting the relationship heat up too fast. We all know how that can bring damage without me elaborating on that. And so, you know, when I got to where the phone bills were, I don't know, at that time, a couple hundred bucks a month, and Hallmark was getting a couple hundred bucks a month, and I thought, 400 bucks a month I could save if I marry this girl. <laughs> no. She's worth way more than that. Number three, if you're going to get a long-term relationship going, look it over. Relax. Um... How did I phrase that second one so I don't foul it up? Take it slow, thank you. Look it over. As I said before, it's way more serious than a home purchase or a car purchase. You know, it's different than just kicking the tires and slamming the doors. You want to really look. I'm going to give you nine quick things on how to appraise the long-term viability of a relationship. <clears throat> That's a mouthful for me. It almost sounds educated. Number one, physical attraction. You kind of got to like what you're seeing, right? You guys just lost me on that one. I mean, there's got to be some physical attraction. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that's all I had to go by when I was sitting on the platform thinking which one to take for lunch. That's all I had so far. I mean, I just met them an hour earlier and I'd only seen them once. And now they're sitting there in the service and I haven't even led worship yet. So... I was a song leader at the time. We called it song leading because I didn't play any instruments. I just did voice and everybody else played the hard stuff. And I just did the one, two, three, four thing. And, and uh, so I didn't even see their response to Jesus in worship yet. I didn't have much to judge by. But I could give you the details on how I picked Peggy if you asked me privately. 
And it's still the same, and I'm glad. But physical attraction, there's an inner beauty, there's an outer beauty. There's, does the person have self-respect? Do you see them acting outwardly in a way that's good, you know, in their mannerisms? Are they neat? Are they clean? Do they have some amount of poise, whatever amount you're looking for? You know, are they physically attractive? Not just are they handsome or are they beautiful? Is their whole person physically attractive? Number two, how about their mental compatibility? Do you have an intelligence and social alignment? You know, are you coming from different ends of the globe or are you kind of the same? Do you get along when you talk? Is, your, is there a, uh, an equal exchange that goes on? Number three, spiritual commitment. I mentioned this earlier. Had I not been able to marry Peggy, she would have served Jesus with all of her life, regardless of me. Um, to go back to my arrogant story, when she said we should date other people, I, my response to her was simple. It was this, because in my heart I had already settled. The heat was on high and I was in. She had me. She didn't know she had me, but I, she had me. And it was good. And I chased her until she caught me. <laughs> But at that point when she said that, Kelly, I can still feel it today. Um, I thought, I don't really want to date anybody else. <laughs> I'm back in Pepperdine, sorry. I really didn't want to date anybody else. And I said, you know what? You can date somebody if you need to. That's fine and that's okay. I said, if you need to find me, there's only a few places I'll be. One is... I'll be at home changing clothes to either go to work or go to church because I'll either be at the church, I'll be at home, or I'll be at work because there's only four places I go now. Home, church, work, and with you. And if with you is extracted from my life, it'll just be one of the other three. So I'm easy to find and I'll always be there. And now what I was saying is I'm going to serve Jesus with all I am and all I ever will be and, and whether we're together or not won't change that. She had the same level of spiritual commitment. And so that's number three. Number four, character strength. Do these people that we're looking at in long-term relationship have convictions that remain strong under pressure? Do they hold to their convictions without compromise when the pressure comes? Are they not self-centered? And a lot of times our convictions are tested when it's going to be about me or the other person. And if I'm always grabbing to hold on for me in the tough times, that usually is a signal that says, hey, if we're married or if we have a long-term relationship, friendship, and the going gets tough, they're going to stick for themselves. Jesus said, John 15, 13, no greater, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. This applies to friendship this morning as well as long-term marriage commitments is that if you've got a friend, will you, will you lay your life down for them? Will you give up for them to go first? We always try and boost them and honor them and help them achieve their goals, even if it costs you yours. <clears throat> Do they have strength of character? I'd like to come back to that point with a story before we're done here, so let me move on quickly. Family history. Something that every relationship should really consider well. Uh, we simply say to the guys and girls we counsel, uh, hey, buddy, have you met her mother yet? How does she, how's it go with her? 
because you're probably marrying a piece of her. We don't marry individuals, we marry families. And everybody's married shaking their heads. It's like, yeah, we do, we marry families. So you want to know mom, you want to meet dad. You know, when you go over, when he takes you to his house or you go somewhere with his folks, does, do you see how are you treated by him? How does the father look at you? And, uh, you know, so you have family history compatibilities, and there's family history stuff that can ruin. You know, if we don't know about it and we run into a relationship, we don't know somebody's carrying the proverbial baggage into the marriage, you know, and going to unpack it later. <whistles> Scary stuff. Next one's personality compatibility. You know, you want to get along with somebody that's kind of got a temperament you can work with where you're not getting together all the time and it's fireworks. Every time you get together, you know, it's, you want harmony in your relationship. You want it to um, be a platform for building, not a platform for always having to repair something. So think about personality stuff, emotional stability. Does this person have a lot of mood swings? Are they, you know, are they able to control themselves? Are they able to manage life pretty well on their own? And how will it go when we're together? Emotional stability. Wise decisions would be another one. And we've been talking about that all this month, making good decisions. Are they able to make good decisions? Do they make wise decisions? Are, all, are these making dumb decisions and doing silly things? Uh, have they made uh, good decisions in their career choices or in their purchases, uh, things that they do? Are they heavily in debt? Um, have they loaded up too much already and they're going to just marry you to their financial uh, disaster? You know, I've advised, I can remember a couple, two couples, that my advice to them after doing premarital counseling was, yes, it's the right person. Yes, you're good for each other. But no, it's not time. You need to take the date you're looking at and move it out. Maybe six months to a year, which is shocking when you tell them that. Like, oh my gosh, why? Well, one of them, for example, had a ton of school debts. The guy. And I said, it is unfair of you to straddle her with your debt. You need a plan to reduce your debt to zero before you take her into this relationship. She should not have to go out and get a job to support your debt. And if you're serious about it, you'll postpone this date and you'll get busy. And if you want, I'll help you. They're still married. He did it. He did something he never thought about. You know, it's right. You know, five cars and six boats and a couple of quads and who knows what else, and say, hey, marry me, baby. And you can work the rest of your life to help me pay all this stuff off. <laughs> Wise decisions. And uh, that's not always about finances. It may be about former relationships, things they've had in their past. Are they good decision makers? And the final one, which is not, these are not in any particular order. They're all important. Do you have authority agreement? Authority agreement is, is do you have the all-clear signal from the witness of parents and siblings and other authority figures in your life, people you respect. You know, we have a part in our premarital counseling when we're talking to young couples, we say it's right here, it's a place for mom and dad and siblings and other authority figures and we have you have to circle are they in favor of or are they opposed to? You know, are they in agreement? Do you have the support of the authority figures in your life to move into this relationship? I mean when you go home and say, Mom, Dad, what do you think? Do they go well, it's kind of shift, you know, hands in her pockets, shift from foot to foot. Well, you know, nice enough guy. He's, she's a good girl, I, I think. 
Or are they just jumping up and down saying, we've been talking about answered prayer around here today because this is the one. We are behind you. We see it. God's in it. We love them. What are you waiting for? Authority agreement. These are important points. Okay? Relax. Take it slow. Look it over. This could save a lot of heartbreak. Now, some of you are wishing somebody would have told you this a lot sooner. And I, I apologize that, and quite seriously, I, I, I do apologize that I think that uh, in some ways the church has, you know, we've relied upon our, our congregations over the years. We've relied upon our leadership over the years to tell us some of these things, and maybe we haven't done it. Maybe we haven't been consistent enough. Somebody told me last week, man, the thing about financial decisions, uh, you know, the, and who was it in a, some interview, Rick Joyner or somebody was on God TV and said the church has failed in training the body of Christ about how to think properly, about how to approach the crisis we're in properly. How do we manage the future? and How do we build relationships? Well, I, I don't intend to go down having not done it. I just apologize to you for, on behalf of the body of Christ if along the way in, in maybe a previous church or um, along the way in your relationship with Christ, nobody's ever told you, I'm sorry, but hey, don't let it stop you now. Take it and use it for the good of others. Those of you who are cell leaders, lighthouse keepers, use it to the benefit of those in your cells. Pass it on. Discuss it. Get the answers they need. You're not the professional, maybe. You're not, you know, you don't have it all, but you got some of it, and you can pass it on. Parents, pass it on to your kids. Form it into their hearts. Shape them as these have dedicated this morning. You've got time now to form and fashion into these young lives. Ability to watch for these things, and you can watch with them. You know, a while ago, and I'll just share this story in closing because it, it's, it's just a great story and most of you would be somewhat familiar with it, but has anybody ever vacationed in Tuscumbia, Alabama? <laughs> anybody ever been to Tuscumbia, Alabama? Anybody ever been to Florence, Alabama or Muscle Shoals? Uh, it's in the same area. Not too far from there. Tuscumbia, Alabama. I went to Tuscumbia, Alabama, and I entered this little house. I was there for the viewing. It was kind of a museum. And I walked in, and, and it was just a little house with a little living room and a, and a stairway going up to the upper floor, bedroom on this side, bedroom on this side, both open to the living room and a little kitchen off the side. That's about all there was. The reason I was there is because this was the childhood home of Helen Keller. And as I walked in, I, I, just the, the richness of history began to just kind of drape over you. And here's the story of Helen Keller, seven years old, uh, can't speak, only makes noises like an animal, can't see, can't hear. And her parents bring in a 20-year-old girl named who? See, now we all know Helen Keller, but there's that hesitancy when it comes to Ann Sullivan. 20-year-old Ann Sullivan comes and tries to work with Helen to help her life regain some some piece of normalcy. And uh, in the process, and I learned this while I was there, I didn't realize it, but as I entered this little house, there's a distance from the edge of the porch in the, on this house of about here to the wall. And just there is another smaller little cottage. And if you know the story of Helen Keller, it's all around the water pump, isn't it? And the water pump is right here between the two houses. 
And it was in this little cottage next door that Ann Sullivan convinced the parents. She said, she has to be away from you for me to be successful. She can't keep running away from me as her teacher trainer and running back to you for solace. I have to keep her to myself. It broke the parents' hearts, but this is what they decided. Really smart move. They took Ann and they loaded her into a buckboard. And uh, Ann and Helen got in the buckboard, the driver, and the driver drove around the property for something like six to eight hours. He just drove this way and then he turned that way and bumped down this road across the field and back this way. And to, to give little Helen the impression that she was a long ways from home. And at the end of that day, as they rode in that buckboard all day, they came back to this little cottage and parked here. And, and Helen had no idea she was only 20 feet away from her parents. She couldn't hear them, couldn't see them. They could see her, and that was the agreement they made that Ann would work with Helen next door, and it would be strenuous. If you've never seen the movie, Patty Duke, 1962, The Miracle Worker, go, probably it's on YouTube for free or something, but get it and check it out. It's really good. And, and it's at this well where finally, I think it was April 5th, like 1862 or something, that Ann's pumping the water, and Helen is holding the cup, and the water's spilling over, and Anne is spelling into Helen's hand the word water over and over and over. And finally, the lights come on for little Helen Keller. And she gets it. She goes, water, water. And she starts grabbing her, touching things, spell this, spell this, spell this, spell this. And it's just off and they're off and running. And the whole thing explodes into the future. And for almost all of her life, Ann Sullivan becomes the second. She becomes the Jonathan of the Jonathan and David story. She becomes the friend who knows how to make good relationships. She has, in the next two years, she has Ann writing letters in French to important people in France. And Ann goes on to learn five languages. She becomes an author and an activist. I remember the story of a guy who was in a big meeting and they were, they were standing up singing the national anthem. And as they were singing, they were going to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And he's looking over and hearing this, this aisles, this lady just making all kinds of gestures and movements. And, and he's irritated with, why doesn't she respect the song and the flag? And, and he mentions to his neighbor, he says, what's with the lady? I mean, she's right there in front of everybody and going like this. And he goes, well, that's Helen Keller. She's singing. Just as patriotic as anybody else. Just didn't have the same tools. But when it was time to sing, she wasn't going to be held back. And we know all about Helen Keller and the little cottage and where she was raised and how she's gone on to be very famous. But the question would become us, how many of us could be Ann Sullivan? How many of us could be subservient to another to allow them to succeed in life? How many of us could get alongside of somebody who has way less than we have and then diminish ourselves and push the relationship up so that they become the king, that they become the queen, and they become the honored person, and I just kind of slip into the background? Choosing and building healthy relationships... You know, when you have a friend, you want them to succeed. When you have a friend, you want them to have all that God has. You want them to become everything God wants them to be. 
And I believe that that has been one of the guiding factors for great relationships for centuries. If you go to 1 Samuel 18, I said we'd end up there and, and we never got there. It's the story of David and Jonathan. In the first three verses of chapter 18, we find Jonathan knitting souls with David, loving him as his own man, and taking off his princely robes and putting them on this shepherd boy and announcing to him in the moment that he is going to be the next king of a nation. As the prince, Saul's son Jonathan, stands in his undergarments and, and this shepherd boy has on the robes of a king. I mean, what a drama that is played out on the stage. And Jonathan becomes subservient. He's second in line. He's going to be the king of Israel. And he, he disrobes himself. He makes himself vulnerable because his heart was knit to David's. His soul was knit to David's. And I need to say this. I said this last night, totally under the leading of the Holy Spirit, and understand that it's important this morning too. This is the passage, 1 Samuel 18, that the homosexual community uses to say that men-to-men men -men relationships are bona fide in the Bible. Don't ever read it that way. You, there are people in life, and I hope, I hope that all of us have somebody at some point in time where we can say, my soul was knit to that other person. For me, I always bring up Rick Turner just because he's probably the oldest and most long-standing one in my life. But I met Rick Turner, and there was a con an instant David and Jonathan effect, and I didn't even know who he was, and I wanted to meet him. And then when I finally did meet him at the end of a week of meetings, I thought, there's something about this guy. I need to know more. I said, I need to know you. And he said, I feel the same way. I need to know you. What, when can we get together? He said, I'm leaving in three days for Canada where I live, way up in Whitehorse. I said, man, we got to get together. He says, I'll drive to Big Bear. And he came up and we, we just went through the rest of the process. Rick's the kind of guy that you cannot see for 10 years and pick it right up. When something's going on in his family, you can almost feel it. And you have somebody you knit where God built the relationship. And that's spectacular. And David, Jonathan had that. Ann Sullivan had that with Helen Keller. It's just this wanting to let the other person do their very best and become all that God wants them to be. There's mutuality, there's loyalty, there's commitment, there's love. But commitment, I would say, in closing, is the strongest piece of good decision-making in relationship. Can you have a commitment to the other person? Because there will be days guaranteed that you will not like them, even if you're married to them. And on those days, you can actually say to one another, um, today is not a good day. And if we don't want it to get worse, we may need to be apart from each other for a little while. But here's the bottom line is that on the days I love you, I really love you. Today is not one of those days. But I am committed. I am committed. So if I'm, if I'm out of shape, please have patience and help me get there because I know we're not going to go any other direction. We're committed. And commitment will win out over love every time. And if it's the other person, you need to give them grace and pray and intercede and stand in and stay away. Give them space. Yeah. Give, give, let them, you know, if they're going to boil over, let them do it somewhere where it's not going to hurt you. But always know that we're coming back to here. We're coming back to the commitment. And in friendships, it works the same way. I'm committed to the best for my friend. 
And if I have to take second slot for them to get it, then let me be Jonathan. Don't let me be David. I don't have to be king. Let me be the second. Or let me be further down. Let me help them up. I will, I will tell you this. It's no secret that the way to get up in life is by helping somebody else get up. And when they get up, they'll lift you with them. Climbing over the top of people to get to the top is horrible. You get up there and there's nobody to hang around with because you've stepped on all of them all along the way. Push others up. Make good decisions in relationships. And those relationships will be with you for the rest of your life. They say that in any 10-year period of our life, and they is actually on the internet, they.com. Uh, they is that nebulous group. You know, It is said that in any 10-year period of our life, we can count the closest of our friends on one hand easily. And usually we can go down to three. Over a period of a lifetime, you may have as many as a dozen, but that would be pretty phenomenal if you had 12 people with whom you would entrust your life. Usually it's under 10 in a whole lifetime. You get lots of acquaintances, lots of friends, but these deep covenant relationships like you see with David and Jonathan and 1 Samuel 18 and people like Ann and Helen Keller, they're reduced. You've got to pressure. I mean, you've got to, you have to honor them. You have to take pleasure in them. You need to um, protect them. Father, this morning, thank you for your word. Lord, I, I apologize to you that we did not read more of Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 18. Lord, I pray that you will lead us to those chapters again and give us the strong foundation of how to build and make good decisions in relationships. Or teach us how to be loyal, how to have commonality, mutuality, how to have love one for another, as your word says, how to be committed people in relationship. Help us to put things in proper alignment so that the spirit man wins the day and that our carnality does not allow us to rush ahead and be foolish. I pray for our young people that even now you would protect them, give them hearts of courage in the relationships they build, strengthen them in the decisions that they make, help them to see with clear eyes and heart the other person that they're thinking about. Give them your grace to evaluate according to your word and wisdom, even ancient wisdom, about how to found the future of their relationship. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name and commit ourselves into your care till we see one another again. Amen. Amen. Amen.